Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Today on the show, Joe Morton. He's an actor who has gone from Broadway to TV to film and back again. He is now appearing on stage here in Los Angeles in the title role in Henry IV. He's doing this alongside Tom Hanks from the Shakespeare Center of Los Angeles. If you, like me, are a fan of the political drama Scandal, then you know Joe as Rowan, a.k.a. Eli Pope, a.k.a. Papa Pope. He plays the father of Washington, D.C. crisis manager Olivia Pope. That character, of course, played by Kerry Washington. In this chat, we talk about Scandal and why Joe calls that show a gift. We talk about how he fell in love with theater. We talk about how he has faced discrimination in the acting world. And, as you'll hear... We'll talk about what's been kind of a thread throughout Joe's story. It's summed up in this line that he delivers in one of his infamous monologues and scandal. You know, he's speaking as a black father to Olivia Pope, and he says, you have to be twice as good to get half of what they have. All right, here's me talking to Joe Morton in our studios in Culver City. Enjoy. so cool. I've watched you on TV basically my entire life. Is that right? Well, because I remember I was thinking today, you were Whitley Gilbert's fiance I a was. different world. That's right. That's right. Um, Debbie, Allen, Debbie Allen, who's a friend of mine, uh-huh. she called and said she was producing and directing this uh-huh. show. When would I come on the show? And uh, basically told her, I'm not a big fan of sitcoms, but because it was her and because yeah. it was that particular yeah. show about black folk in college, I thought, sure. And we made a deal. I said, you can give all the comedy to everybody else as long as you give me real West Virginian politics. Yeah, you were a politician. (laughs) She did. And it was great. We had a good time. That was like an iconic plot arc. It was. Um, And the wonderful thing, I guess, about that is that people think I was on the show for a long time. I really only did six episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because you came in and then, you know, Dwayne Wayne came and... And took you her served, away. Took her away. <laughs> what? That was what nineties. I think so. Yeah. When did you? What was your first time on TV? Oh, oh gosh, my first time on TV was probably the early seventies. I did um, uh, uh, a soap opera. Sur- really? Uh, yes. Um, what was it called? Uh, Search for Your Life, or whatever it was called. <laughs> Because I was doing Raisin at the same time. I was doing a musical version of Raisin in the Sun in Washington, D.C. Huh. And so I would fly into New York every day to do Search for Tomorrow. Okay. Um, to do Search for Tomorrow, um, which was my first time on TV. Which, I mean, so you've done now TV stage, and we'll talk more about stage with this play you're doing now, uh, and also film. Yes. Which of the three do you like best? Well, theater will always be home. I mean, yeah. that's, that's where I started. That's, yeah. that's for me, where things began. I, I, I even tell young actors today that, you know, if you want to be an actor, what you need to do is to do theater first. Why? Before you do, well, because it's, it's, it's like being a doctor. You have to do your residency. Okay. So if you can do a character uh, several months at a time, eight days a week, and keep that character fresh, then you've learned the craft of acting. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's essential. Who was your first role on my, stage? My first role on stage, well, let's see. I came out of school, I got an agent, uh, and I got into a musical called A Month of Sundays. It was terrible. Why was it terrible? Well, it was kind of this saccharine, sweet uh, adaptation of the Noah story. So there was a big... How do you make that story saccharine sweet? Well, because it was a musical and all the characters were kind of, you know, all squeaky. And (laughs) there was a flood in New York and um, all these characters sort of float up. As a matter of fact, I floated up on an old-fashioned... Well, you have to remember, this is now the late 60s. 
agencies. Uh-huh. So I floated up on a telephone booth. We used oh, to have Lord. telephone. Actually, remember <laughs> telephone booths? Yeah, I remember that. So I floated up on a telephone booth, and there was the very first day of previews. Uh-huh. Uh, I came out on stage. Uh, the telephone booth clicked onto the uh, temporary backing for the for the set. And I saw it waving in the breeze behind me, didn't think anything about it, got out onto the stage about to say my first line, when this thing comes crashing down. Stop it. Um, we had snow in the fly, so all the snow came <laughs> down. I think there was a parachute up there, and that came down. Uh, and that was my first uh, uh, appearance on any stage in New York. So actually, I can say that the very first time I was on stage, I brought the house down. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. <laughs> then uh, the producer jumped up on stage, obviously, and stopped the play, and we reset everything, and oh my uh, we started all over again. You must have been mortified. I was, I, you know, I mean, even as all that was happening, you know, because they said the show must go on, so I kept saying my lines <laughs> and, until the producer finally jumped up and, and stopped it. And I, uh, the reviewer said, I'm, the only reviewer I remember said, you know, it's early in the season, but the first turkey has hit off-Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> You have come a long way on stage since then. Thank I God, saw yes. you last week on stage here in L.A. in Henry IV. Oh, good. How's that going? Uh, it's going great. Um, uh, uh, the other night, I don't know if you heard about this or saw this on YouTube. I was there that night. Oh, were you there? Tell my listeners. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, uh, for those of you who weren't there, uh, there was unfortunately, a, I think a gentleman um, was suffering from dehydration and sort of passed out in the audience. The EMS group sort of showed up and took him uh, out of the theater and was taking care of him when um, Tom Hanks, who plays Falstaff, yeah. uh, were doing Henry IV, um, got up on stage and began to do an improv. Yeah. Um, talking about cutting people's hair with his sword and eventually brought this woman up on stage who said that her name was Francis and he told her that Francis would be said within the play. Uh, I think she probably thought at the time he was kidding uh-huh. until, of course, Hamish, who plays uh, my son, who plays Hal, uh, later in the play says, you know, um, I know every Tom, Dick, and Francis. Of course, <laughs> uh, the audience went crazy. Yeah. What is it like, I mean... To do Shakespeare is great. Yes. But to do Shakespeare with that cast, you know, and not just Tom Hanks, the oh, whole cast is This great. is an incredible, an amazing cast that Dan Sullivan, uh, who directed it, uh, has put together. It's uh, myself and Tom Hanks and Hamish Linklater, uh, Rondi Reed, um, uh, uh, Emily Swallow. I mean, this, this is an amazing group of people who do Shakespeare. Um, uh, I don't think I've ever been in a company sort of quite this clear. Uh, usually with Shakespeare, there's usually somebody where you can't quite understand what they're saying, I think. But but here, everyone is uh, understands the language, understands how to how to perform the language. Uh, it's it's an it's an amazing production. And the nice thing is, you're outside. This is a wonderful uh, stage that is outdoors in West Los Angeles. And that's been constructed by the vets uh, at the vet center there. Huh. There was nothing there before. I did not know that. Yes, they, they built, at the veterans at the veterans center, the yeah. VA center in LA. There was nothing there. Huh. They built the stage. Yeah. They built uh, all of the um, uh, equipment necessary to put the lights up. They built the actual venue where the seats are. They built our temporary dressing rooms behind. That they built, they just built this entire thing. I didn't know that. That's it's, beautiful. It's part of a work program that they had over there, oh, so that nice. they've all now learned stagecraft. Yeah. Uh, whether it be building the sets or working the lights or working the sound or working props, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. Is there a difference in preparation for reading Shakespeare on stage as opposed to like stuff written? For What's, a more modern era, it's harder language. That's right. So, so a lot of the time, you're sort of going back and um, discerning what it is exactly you're saying, because certain phrases that we use today oh, yeah. are not exactly the way they were used back yes. in the day. Um, so, there's that kind of research. Uh, I bought 
a couple of different books just to research Henry for himself, just, yeah. to, just to know the actual history of who he was. Found out he was an amazing um, jouster. He actually used to, used to go to okay. jousting uh, tournaments. So uh, now you joust. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Out there with my horse and my uh, uh-huh. lance every day. Um, but I, I didn't know that. I also didn't know that during the course of his reign, there were six or seven rebellions that he put down huh. uh, in the time that he was uh, king. Um, it's just it's an amazing time. You know, there's a there's a scene in the uh, in the play where there's an actual battle. And every time I, I watch the scene, I have to remember I have to remind myself that when it actually happened, it took place in Shrewsbury, hmm. that most of the people on the battlefield were teenagers. Really? That they were all I mean, um, the king was there and maybe he was in his 30s at, yeah. at, at best. Yeah. Um, but these wars were fought by very, very young men out there with swords and uh, chain mail that weighed God knows how, how much. I mean, you have to think of the strength and perseverance that, that they had to go through just to, just to put that stuff on. Yeah, totally. What kind of guy are you in rehearsal, on set. I got the feeling from seeing the play that night that uh, Tom Hanks is kind of the class clown. Uh, what is your role in a production offstage? Um, I guess I'm, uh, I have a tendency to be more quiet, um, uh, to be more concentrated. Uh, it's great having people like Tom around, although the whole company is a, a lot of fun. When we go, we have a, a fight rehearsal every day. That sounds really fun. <laughs> well, also, so make sure that nobody gets hurt. Oh, yeah. um, so, but in the course of the fight rehearsals, um, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, dialogue. We sort of just make up stuff as we're going along. Yeah, so, yeah. so pretty much it's a room full of class clowns, nice. um, which, is, which just makes the whole thing a lot of fun. And we've also gotten very close together in the last six weeks of rehearsal. Nice. Um, one of the gentlemen, for instance, uh, his car got totaled by some drunk um, who teed him even while the car was parked and oh, so we no. got together and um, put some money together and help him buy another secondhand oh, car that's so nice. that's how close we are yeah 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 um, so it's it's an amazing group of people how long will you guys all be together how long is this uh, we rehearsed for six weeks and we're done uh, performing on July 1st okay so you get this really nice tight close connection and then everyone goes away <laughs> that's the nature of this business yeah do you stay in LA or, or, or you go to New York I'm an East Coaster I go back to the East Coast where are you from uh, New York where in New York uh, right now, nowhere in New York. Okay. <clears throat> um, my joke is that I'm globally homeless. Um, <laughs> okay. I had an apartment in New York. I was doing a gig in Vancouver um, and dealing with a divorce at the same time. So it's like I had three houses. Lord. So I had to give something up, gave up the uh, apartment in New York, figuring I could uh, live wherever I'm working. When I'm not working, I could live wherever I wanted to. Yeah. Uh, no sooner did I make that decision than the gig I was doing yeah. died. Uh-huh. Um, and that was at least seven or eight years ago. So in the last seven or eight years, I just literally bounce back and forth. I'll rent a place out here in L.A., go back to New Jersey, uh, stay with my girlfriend's parents for a month or two, come back to L.A. to to go to work. That sounds stressful. Actually, it's okay. I mean, I've been doing that kind of thing for most of my life. It's it's okay with me. It's not so great with my girlfriend. I think she gets... Well, I bet. She, yeah, she gets really tired <laughs> of being dragged from one side of the world to the other. So we are now in the process of buying a house. Congratulations. Yes. In uh, New York. In New Jersey. New Jersey, okay. Uh, a riverfront house in uh, Red Bank, New Jersey. Love it. Now, you're originally from Harlem, though, right? That's where I was born, yes. Okay. Um, but I never grew up there. My dad was in the service. Okay. So, um, again... 
from the time I was about four or five, we were traveling. I lived in Okinawa, I lived in Japan, I lived in Germany, lived in Massachusetts. Um, and we did that till I was 10. He died when I was 10. Uh, that's when I we came back to New York. I lived in Harlem with my grandmother for about a year. Then my mom and I moved out to Queens, where I went to high school. Then we moved to <coughs> Long Island, where I went to college. And then okay. after college, uh, studying to be an actor, back on the road again doing this. You didn't go into college, though, to be an actor or, or, at first, right? That's you right. went to Hofstra. That's right. There's a story behind how you got into acting. Right. Uh, I entered Hofstra as a psychology major. Why and, that? Um, I don't know. I, I enjoyed reading. Uh, I enjoyed the idea of uh, what makes people tick. Mm-hmm. Um, I had originally wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to go to the United States Air Force Academy. Okay. Found, found out I needed to wear glasses. I What's only, wrong with glasses? Well, you can't fly high-altitude high equipment if you wear glasses. Oh, so either you get the corrective surgery you can't do it. Or you can become a navigator. Okay. Um, uh, it kind of just, what it did was it, I think it put, both of my feet on the ground. I was doing that because I wanted to sort of emulate who I thought my father was and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I decided on psychology. Okay. First day of orientation, they take us around the campus of Hofstra University. They take us into the theater. They show us a skit or a short play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it's over, they What's put, the skit about? Uh, just about what our first year in, this, in school would be like. Okay. Um, uh, at the end of the skit, they put a work light on the stage, and I can't get up out of my seat. I just sit there thinking I'd been playing guitar for a while, uh, starting to write songs. I really loved doing that. Maybe I could be an actor. And I finally stood up in the theater, walked to the registrar's office, and changed all my majors from psychology to drama. All it took was a freshman orientation skit. That's, what, that's all it took. What if you had seen first, like, I don't know, hair or something? Uh, I ended up doing hair when I left school. <laughs> <laughs> what world were you in? Yeah. Uh, I was just a member of the tribe, and uh, I, I was the understudy for HUD. Um, I, I got into the show uh, several months after they opened. Okay. That's awesome. So, okay, you decide that you want to do drama. Was your family supportive? Um, my grandmother, who had uh, uh, promised to help out financially, uh, decided she changed her mind. She thought I was crazy. Mean granny. Yeah, she thought, no, 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 this is not going to work. My mother, at first, tried to be as, as supportive as she could, but the, the basic attitude was, you know, you're a black man in this world. They're only going to let you go but so far, hmm. um, which was not my attitude. Hmm. Um, what was your attitude? My attitude is I can go as far as I can go. Okay. Um, so she tried to be supportive, um, uh, but she was very doubtful. Uh, I was also struggling in school because I would audition for a role only to be told, well, you can't really play that role because there's a girlfriend involved and the girl is white or blah, 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 blah. There'd wow. Be no, or what decade was this? This is, uh, I was supposed to graduate in 69. Okay. So it's the late, mid to late 60s. And they were still doing that. And they were still doing that. Uh, finally, uh, uh, actually, one of my favorite teachers uh, was doing a play by Brendan Behan uh, called The Hostage. And okay. it's about an English uh, soldier who was taken hostage by the IRA. Mm-hmm. So he's the, you know, the big man. He's the man out. Yeah. So I thought, oh, perfect. Um, you know, yes, there's, he ends up with a relationship with a woman who's Irish, but that's the point of the play yeah. is that he's English and she's Irish. Yeah. And, uh, I, do, I auditioned for the piece, and the uh, teacher, director says, um, and he literally said this. He said, uh, Joe, you could probably do this with your hands tied behind you, he said, but um, no pun intended, but it, it would color the play. Oh, my God. So I, 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 I got furious and said, well, then I'm out. Yeah. I'm out. Uh, I decided to quit school. This was 1968. And these are supposed to be like... That's right. The college campus is supposed to be like this progressive bastion of like... <laughs> 
it's where forward movement. Exactly. It's where you're supposed to learn your craft, which I did. Now, the other side of all of this is I had some wonderful, wonderful acting teachers who taught me. I mean, the techniques I use today are the same techniques they taught me then. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were incredible. I just couldn't get the kind of work on the main stage that I, re- that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so when this happened, I left school. Uh, my teacher was very upset that he had made me that upset. So he said, all right, so if you're leaving school, and he gave me a name, he wrote it down on a piece of paper, he said, just when you leave, call this agent, tell this agent that I told you to call, and he'll hmm. probably take you on. I said, great. So left school, got myself set up in an apartment, made the phone call. I said, my name is Joe Morton. Joe Leon told me to call you. Hmm. Um, and the voice on the other end said, fine, come in on Wednesday. This is a Monday. So Wednesday shows up. I go down to the agency. Uh, I show up, uh, go down to go to the desk, and the woman behind the desk uh, says, I said, I'm here to see so-and-so. My name is Joe Morton. She said, are you sure you're in the right place? As and in, I, like, why is this black guy here? No. Huh. She said, uh, She said, when did you make this appointment? And I said, well, just on Monday. She said, that's not possible. He hasn't worked here for several months. Uh. So I said, well, I spoke to somebody, and, yeah. they, and they said, come down. Yeah, yeah. So she gets up, she goes to the back, um, she comes back out, she takes me in, and she introduces me to a guy by the name of Ed Blum, who was not the man I was calling. Who were you calling? A guy named Richard somebody. Uh, we'd never exchanged names on the phone. All I said was, <laughs> my name is Joe Morton, Joe Leon told me to call you. <laughs> call and you, just, you didn't know who the you was. And just happened that this guy also knew Joe, Joe Leon. Oh. So it was a complete coincidence. That's hilarious. Uh, went into his office, uh, we hit it off right away he made a phone call and got me into that terrible play uh, a month of Sundays <laughs> right off the bat so I got my equity card immediately okay. you know all the actors that I talk to they speak of this like few years of wandering the wilderness of New York trying to find the right roles trying to make enough money to mm-hmm. afford stuff like there's just those years of struggling as an actor before it clicks how long were your struggle years gosh um <clears throat> uh I guess I was lucky. I did because you had work as soon as you left school. Not pretty much. I mean, uh, by nineteen, I left school in nineteen sixty-eight. So by nineteen seventy-two, um, I was the lead in *Raisin*, which was a musical version of *Raisin in the Sun*. Uh, and at that point, I received um, a Tony, uh, a Theater World Award, and a Tony nomination. So, so you were doing all right. I was doing all right. Um, I am one of those few actors who never waited tables and, and really never had a sort of a slew of yeah. of temporary jobs that sort of I had to hold on to until things clicked. It, I was lucky that um, things began to happen pretty quickly. Why do you think that is the case? Um, I made some decisions. Uh, uh, amongst those decisions were, uh, it, it, in my time, there were lots of roles being offered to play pimps and, and drug dealers mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no. I said, <laughs> um, um, someone will do that. It won't be me. Mm. Uh, and made decisions. And because I could sing, I could do musicals. Yeah. Um, it was a time when... Uh, because of the political nature of the country, things like hair were happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, 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 a big plus. And Raisin um, just was a huge hit. I mean, I ended up doing Raisin on Broadway. Yeah. I'll never do this again for two and a half years. That is a long time. That's a very long time. And that's actually when my mother decided that I was possibly going to make it in this business. <laughs> um, she, After the Tony nomination. Ab- well, more... more this uh, seen you on Broadway. She was on a bus on a particular Sunday mm-hmm. after the matinee. She'd already seen the show, obviously. She'd mm-hmm. come out opening night yeah. and the rest of it. And a group of women got onto the bus, and they had just come from seeing Raisin, and they mm-hmm. all had the playbills, and they were all talking about me. Ah. And she announced to the bus that she was my mother. I love and it. And she ended up signing autographs. Yes. So uh, I think that was the turning point for her. 
All right, time for a quick break here. When we come back, how Joe's TV career took off and, of course, Scandal. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Discover Card. You check your email or social media all the time, but Discover asks, what about checking something as important as your credit score? Well, Discover makes it quick and easy with their credit scorecard, which is free for everyone, even if you're not a customer. See your FICO credit score and other important credit information. And once you know your score, you should check to see if your current credit card is the best fit for you. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, the host of 1A. We're spending a week bringing you stories of cutting-edge ideas and new technologies that could change our lives for years to come. To hear our reports from the Aspen Ideas Festival, check out 1A wherever you get your podcasts. And so you're doing great on stage, yes. on Broadway. Did you want to do more TV or TV just happened? Uh, TV kind of just happened. Um, uh, as I say, there wasn't a lot of uh, material for black male actors mm-hmm. at the time. So theater was kind of um, <clears throat> what I wanted to do. There was a musician's strike. And I'd been doing the play, as I said, for two and a half years. And I was offered a sitcom. Um, not my favorite thing in the world to do. But not it, that bad. But it was being produced by um, um, uh, one of the uh, partners who had done All in the Family. Okay. So it looked like this had possibilities. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Carol Cole, who was Nat King Cole's niece, who he had adopted huh. as his daughter, played my wife. Um, so it looked like this could be something. What was the show called? It was called Grady. Okay. And the, the reason it happened was, uh, you're probably too young to know this, but uh, Red Fox. Uh, i Red Fox. Well, he... he while he was doing his show, um, Sanford and Son yeah. got mad at the production company because he had no windows in his dressing room. <laughs> and so he decided not to come to work. And Whitman Mayo, who played Grady on that show, kind of took over the show huh. for a short period of time while Red was out. <laughs> so when Red finally decided to come back when they put a window in his dressing room, yeah. uh, Whitman Mayo's managers said, now that Whitman's kind of helped you out, you need yeah. to help him out by giving him his own show, okay. which they did. Um, But what they ended up giving him was just um, lip service. All they were doing was literally regurgitating scripts that they had written for other white sitcoms. I mean, I remember turning the television on and watching a show and word for word watching an episode of whatever the show was um, for what we we were doing. Wow. Um, Needless to say... The show uh, didn't last more than six weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, that was, so that was kind of uh, my second television thing. I thought, oh, that's just not fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, um, uh, I think what kind of broke it open for me was a Brother from Another Planet, John Sayles. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, phenomenal stuff. Tell folks who might not, not know what that is what it is. Uh, Brother of Another Planet is a film written by John Sayles, who, for for my money, is probably the quintessential American independent uh, filmmaker. Yeah. Um, he wrote this film about a black alien who is a slave on his own planet, who escapes that planet, makes his way to this planet, um, and he looks like he knows what's going on, obviously. He ends up in Harlem. Um, he has no idea what's going on, and he starts seeing things and putting things together. He has no ability to speak, but he does have the ability to heal um, by touch and to fix electronic equipment by touch. Hmm. It's quite a story. Yeah, yeah. So, like, from all of that, you end up in this show that seems to be kind of 
larger than life for many, many years. I'm talking about Scandal. Scandal. And I'm sure you're probably tired of talking about that show. At Not at all. I okay. will never be tired of t- okay. talking about Scandal. Scandal was um, a gift. Um, uh, I came to L.A. that particular year. This is uh, five and a half years ago, six mm-hmm. years ago. Came to L.A. for pilot season. Mm-hmm. Uh, had heard of Scandal, had not seen it. Had heard of Carrie Washington. Hadn't really seen much yeah. of her either. Yeah. And decided to sit down one day and open my computer and watched the first season of Scandal on Netflix. Yeah. Loved what I saw. Loved the writing. Loved the way they shot it. Yeah. And thought to myself, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could figure out a way to get on the show, you know, for one or two episodes. Yeah. But before I even had an opportunity to make that phone call to my agents, they called me and said, hmm. we just got a call from ABC. They would like to talk to you about coming on to Scandal. Why do you think they wanted you? I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Um, I was shocked. I thought, wow, this is great. And so I uh, got on the phone with one of the producers uh, who then began to explain that I would be playing, well, began to talk about the show and said, so here's the thing. Uh, we'd like you to come onto the show to play Kerry Washington's dad, but you can't tell anyone. Huh. It's a secret. Huh. You can't tell anyone. Yeah. So for the first, I mean, that, that I was on the end of season two. For, for those six episodes, uh, I and a couple of the other producers were the only one only ones who knew that at the end of that season, mm-hmm. the last words would be, um, uh, hello, Dad, what are you doing? Oh, I remember that scene. Yeah. Uh, and Kerry didn't know. Uh, really? No one knew. I'm telling you. It oh, was, my goodness. So, um, of course, when we finally got to the very last script of that season, because there was a table read. We always have a table read. And yeah. we all were sitting around the table, and we all read that script. Everybody went nuts. Really? And that's when I could tell everybody. Because so, everyone said, did you know? Did you know? I said, yeah, of course yeah. I knew. And you're like, I'm going to be here for a while. I'm going to be around. <laughs> I'm going to be around. And it was great because because of the character, because of who uh, Rowan was, it was great to have a secret to yeah. hold on to as part of what was going on. Because Rowan's full of secrets. Full of secrets. So for people that have been living under a rock that never watched this show uh, who are missing out you play the father uh, of Olivia Pope right she is DC's preeminent fixer right but you head up this secret government department called B613 correct which is like the dark, shady side of the Pentagon, basically. Uh, or it, it, describe it, it. It runs. It basically runs everything. Yeah. It runs everything. He 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 is the power behind the throne, if you yeah. will. But the but the unknown power behind yeah. the throne. The hell and the high water. He is the hell and the high water. Said. That's right. Um, watching that role and watching you in it and watching it again now, how do you ever prepare to play that kind of role? Like, is there any research you can do for a character running an agency that is at sometimes so sinister? Um, I didn't necessarily do research. What I did was um, my father, when he was alive, his basic job was to integrate the armed forces overseas, which meant he would be assigned to a particular post. He would show up racially unannounced, as mm-hmm. would we all, mm-hmm. the, the family, mm-hmm. and go in and just do the job. And, yeah. and what he was faced with, because uh, this was the late 50s, so what he was faced with most of the time was opposition. Yeah. Um, people did not want to have a black officer amongst them yeah. telling them what to do. And I used that, actually, really, as the basis of who Rowan was um, in that he was someone who had been kind of like Colin Powell, fast-tracked at, at a certain point um, through the military and found his way into the Secret Service, if you will, and basically built this organization understanding 
what America was. So that yeah. was, that was my particular take on who he was. Um, and then as we went from episode to episode, that built my history of who he was. Because we never knew, we the cast, never knew from episode to episode what was going to happen until we had that table read. Huh. So again, for all of us, our history was built based on the last script we had done. Yeah. There were many seasons where... On top of just being this really awesome high drama television show, it was a commentary of sorts on mm. America's security state. Sure. What do you think was the big moral of that story or the big lesson that mm. Shonda and all of you guys were trying to impart to the American viewing public about governments and what they can do? Well, I mean, I think it was important for Shonda to talk about. Um, I mean, it, it, let's go back even one step further. Um one of the things that was great about Scandal is that it was a, a diverse cast. Yeah. Um, that that what she was trying to put on the screen was what you would see if you walk out onto the street in terms yeah. of the kinds of people that you see up on the screen. In terms of the politics of the show, you know, if you do a if you do a political show, if you're House of Cards or you're Scandal or you're any one of those mm-hmm. shows, you can't ignore what was going on in the real world. Yeah. Um, and I think things like when uh, Courtney Vance came on the show and um, was sitting out on the street uh, with his shotgun uh, over the dead body of his son, and yeah. we're talking about uh, police brutality. Yeah. I mean, so those kinds of things couldn't uh, ever be avoided. Yeah. Um, uh, otherwise, we'd be kind of lying. I mean, but on the other side of things, both Carrie and I would get um, things on Twitter, people saying, you know, uh, when uh, our new president was... Um, elected or if there were police violence, you know, we'd get things like, you know, why, why doesn't Rowan, I wish Rowan could get out there and do something. And, and, I, and I would always have to say, you have to remember that what we do on the show is make-believe yeah. and what's happening in the country is real. Yeah. So it's not for me to do something alone, it's for all of us mm. together to do something. Yeah. I think what is so, and what still haunts me about Scandal is that it just makes you stop, pause, and say to yourself, there are lots of things that your government does that you don't know about. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of things that they do that you don't know about that would give you pause if you knew. And I think people forget that. I think it also said that there are lots of things that you are aware of that you don't do anything about. Mm. Do you think Scandal would have been a different show had it begun in a Trump administration? It began when Barack Obama was president. Would it have been different otherwise? I don't know. Um, I do know that uh, uh, Shonda had foreseen a slightly different ending than what we ended up with. Hmm. Um, and that was certainly uh, affected by who won the election that year. Hmm. Yeah. And there was a bit of like this plot arc where it seems to be a Trump-like character running for office on the show. All right. Uh, uh, Greg Henry played a character who was very much like Trump. Um, and again, if you remember, that character sort of came and went. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think what was interesting about the way Shonda would organize her scripts is things would be sprinkled through the script and from varying different characters, um, mm-hmm. depending on what was being talked about. Um, so you would just hear things that would um, make maybe perk up your ears in terms of what was going on in the real world, but maybe from a character that you wouldn't expect to hear it from. Yeah. On top of being this wonderful political commentary, I really loved your character because of the way it got into the intricacies of a really complicated relationship between a black father and his black daughter. Mm. And I mean, there are countless monologues that I could play from you (laughs) on the show, but there's this one that I think we have queued up where you are giving some real talk to your daughter on the show, Kerry Washington's character. 
and you give this speech that is like real and true i think for any black person that's ever seen the show because it's there's some parallels with all of our upbringings i know more than you could possibly imagine about things of which you cannot dream he told you that you would be first lady and you believed him did i not raise you for better how many times have i told you you have to be what you have to be what twice what twice as good twice as good as them to get half what they have every black child has heard that speech from their parents yes. did you get the speech oh of course um uh, as i said my father was uh, his job was to integrate the armed forces overseas so i got that speech every day <laughs> um, how much of him were you channeling in, in in that monologue particularly um i think probably it's funny about that monologue um that was the very first monologue that they ever gave me yeah, uh, that was the beginning of season three. Yeah, uh, I always call that monologue my audition. <laughs> um, it worked um, because up until that point, I mean, other than the very last scene of um, uh, season two, pretty much all I was doing was sort of handing out envelopes and saying, "Go kill this person." Yeah, I wasn't doing a, l- yeah. a lot of anything. Yeah, then uh, we have the sort of the revelation that I am the dad, and then the beginning of season three, I get in the mail my script, and it has this incredible monologue in it um i was thrilled but i thought all right so this is what they're setting up yeah that this is how he talks which i just um i can't tell you how happy i was because it's it's like having your cake and being able to eat it too in that to get a speech like that is like doing theater but it's on television yeah um and no one writes monologues for characters on tv not, not on the screen yeah um and yes, uh, the response to that speech, um, in terms of uh, the black response to that speech, was overwhelming because we've all heard we've that. All heard we've it. all heard that speech. Yeah. Yes, not with such dramatic flair. There, there is a certain art to those scandal monologues you had, and you know it. I mean, like they became iconic. Every yes. single one you yeah. did. I was watching this really funny uh, skit you did with Trevor Noah when you're on the the uh, when he comes uh, into the dressing room. He comes in the dressing room for the Daily Show. <laughs> And you give him one of those monologues comedically. Like, how often are you asked, because of scandal, to monologue? Not so much to monologue. People always say, you know, can you talk to us like you're yeah. Rowan? Um, and it's that's fun. Uh, it's interesting because it's not like, you know, I, I have it right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, there's nothing. The things that happened to me during Scandal, there's just nothing better. One, to be given a nickname by the audience, uh, Papa Pope. Papa Pope. No one ever <laughs> called me Papa Pope in the show. Yeah. It was from Twitter, which uh-huh. I, which was just delightful. Do you ever go somewhere and monologue to throw people off? Like, do you go to the DMV and say, <laughs> I am here for my appointment. <laughs> I am the hell in the high water. No, usually I what, will have three Big Macs. You no, know, usually what happens is I walk up and people, if they recognize me, um, they start doing the monologue. <laughs> <laughs> Give me an example. Well, I mean, you know, um, uh, I, I, I thought when you said DMV, I think the guy behind the counter, you know, he re- realized who I was, and so he began to tell me what I what I needed to do and how to do it. But he was doing it like he was like he was playing Rowan. Stop <laughs> it! <laughs> what did you say to that? I just laughed. I mean, it, you know, it's it's wonderful. Um, yeah. Um, 
it was also, it's also interesting that what happened was that um, I think at first, uh, if people saw me on the street, they would be nervous about approaching. They weren't sure well, whether— Because you're a villain. <laughs> well, yes. And so the, and people aren't, aren't ever sure whether that's really who uh-huh. you are or not. And then a delightful thing started happening. Um, people would see me on an airplane, for instance, and they would just, hey, Papa Pope. You know, <laughs> so it became— um, they understood, and, and I thought about this last night because somebody asked me the same question yesterday. Um, and I think it's because I started doing shows like this and started talking where people realized, oh, great. Yeah. He's not the same person that we see on TV. He's this other person. Yeah. Um, and I think that made it comfortable for people to approach. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you a weird thing. Uh, I'm always looking for new Halloween costumes. And I, <laughs> so I was Kanye West for like four or five years, and he went out the deep end. Uh, I'm going to be... Your scandal character for Halloween. Oh my gosh. It won't be too hard. It's a suit. It's a suit. Trim up the facial hair. We're already doing the same haircut. Well, in the show, I did have hair. This you hair, did, this, yeah. This haircut's for Henry. I like it, though, and I'm just going to keep it. <laughs> uh, give me a quick monologue coaching session. How can I do that? So the thing is that you have to mean it. See, okay. When I see people do um, sort of interpretations of what they think I'm doing, mm-hmm. they're just copying what I'm doing gotcha. as opposed to like meaning. Mean it. You have to it has to be it has to come from your soul. Okay. Um, uh, there's another monologue that uh, people seem to enjoy and that's the one where I call Tony a boy. Oh um, yeah. Um, and again, that was one of those situations where I the prepara- the preparation had to be deep. I had to really understand what it is I wanted from him. And uh-huh. What I wanted from him in that moment was basically to understand that he had no power. Yeah. Um, and with Olivia in the, in the monologue that you played, it's to present the real world. Here's the world that we live in. Yeah. Um, so those things have to be real. Otherwise, it's, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you channel like, what emotion do you channel when you're doing them? Um, Anger, what? Well, that's the other trick, right? So if you're talking to Olivia, that's your daughter. Yeah. So there's no, it's not so much about anger. It is about trying to get your child. It's like in Henry the mm. Fourth. I have a big long scene in Henry the Fourth with Hamish, with my, the guy who plays my son, where I'm trying to get him to see how he should be and what yeah. the circumstances are. Yeah. Well, the reason the scene works is because I'm talking to my son. Yes. So the same thing is true with talking to your daughter. It's this is your child. Yeah. You want you care. her. You you really care. I mean, and so that's a, a, a huge part of it. Yeah. Whereas when you're talking with some of the other characters, you don't like them. You hate them. But <laughs> still, there. But there has to be something real going mm-hmm. on. I mean, it's not just I hate you. Yeah. Um, it's I hate you because, and I and here's what I'd like to do about it, and here's. Um, uh, who I think I am as opposed to who I think you are. I'm, all the things that happen in real life. Yeah. Um, so so in order for the monologues to work, they have to be real. They have to be real. I'm trying to think. What would my, my realist monologue? I don't know. It, it would be against the 10 or the 405. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Just like... The 405 would be easy. There you go. <laughs> All right, one more break here in a minute, going from stage to screen and back again, and violence on TV. If you're a guy, you might feel like there's a lot changing right now. Getting harder for people to figure out what a man's supposed to be. Yeah, it's very strange right now to be a dude. How do I want to say this? Uh, There's more of an eye on masculinity in general, men and what their actions are. It's not as easy to figure out what it is to be a man. It's tense, for sure, right now. 
In fact, 60% of men feel like society puts pressure on them in unhealthy ways. That's according to a new national survey of men from the WNYC Studios podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. The survey is in collaboration with the data news site 538 and SurveyMonkey. On the podcast, they're going to dig into this moment of shifting gender norms to hear how men are thinking about how they were taught to be men and what they're having to relearn right now. You can find the new episode of Death, Sex, and Money. It's called Manhood Now. Get it wherever you get your podcast or at deathsexmoney.org slash men. How hard was it for you to get your head back in the space of the stage after... And you, uh, years of scandal, years of that. It's was it a big departure to go to a show like Henry the Fourth, or was it not? Uh, not so much back to the stage because I'd been doing. You've been doing it throughout. Well, I'd been doing um, a Turn Me Loose, which is a, yes. a play about Dick Gregory. Okay, so that I had been doing okay. while I was doing Scandal, um, and that's uh, for all intent and purposes a one man show. I yeah. mean, there is another actor who plays smaller roles opposite yeah. me, but pro- but essentially it's a one man show. Mm-hmm. So so. In, I guess in certain ways that helped me with Henry mm. IV because, I, again, lots of long speeches mm. in Henry IV. Um, the, the thing that you have to prepare for with Shakespeare is Shakespeare. Yeah. Is, it's uh, iambic pentameter, so that means there, is a, there are rhythms involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's understanding that um, because it's poetry, it's abbreviated language yeah. on top of the fact that it's Elizabethan language <laughs> yeah. um, and on top of the fact that one thought might take six or seven lines to get through. Yeah. So those are the things you have to sort of realign yourself with is is that you're doing poetry. Yeah, yeah. You sing, too. I do, yes. Where can we best find your singing voice? Where, uh, well, where should we look? N- nowhere at the moment, uh. Um, but uh, <laughs> but we are in the studio, and we are... Really? Yes. Uh, we've been in the studio, I guess, for the last so eight or nine months, I suppose, um, off and on, uh, it's whenever I can get back to the East Coast. Uh, and we're hoping that over the course of the next year, maybe, we can, we'll can we finish this album and put it out. What kind of music? A lot of it is original. Um, it sort of crosses the boards between um, jazz and blues and, um, and a little bit of rock and roll. Huh. So besides doing music, you're also involved in politics to a certain extent. Uh, you recently narrated a documentary about Flint, Michigan. Yes. Uh, you have in many spaces talked about your personal politics. What are you doing doing in terms of politics right now, if anything? Just finished doing um, a piece by a woman by the name of Camilla Forbes. Mm-hmm. And what she did was is she took Between the World and Me mm-hmm. uh, and she condemned... It's not book. Exactly. Um, and she took several sections of that book and she put it together to talk about um, police violence in particular. Wow. Uh, and we did two performances at the Apollo, and we huh. did uh, two performances at the Kennedy Center. Uh, and he sh- actually he even showed up, and he read he really? read he read the last chapter of the of Tanahasi. Oh. Yeah, Tana- yeah. Uh, it it was spectacular. That sounds powerful. It was spectacular. That sounds powerful. Uh, uh, Angela Bassett was a part of it. Um, Common was a part of it. Um, a whole bunch of folks. Uh, it was amazing, and to and to be in Washington. Yeah. And to say those words was pretty incredible. Yeah. You know, thinking of police brutality and police-involved shootings of black men and black people, it's a kind of issue now that I realize has been in the air for a few years. And there's some days you see the headlines and it seems like it hasn't gotten better. No, I agree. Um, And one of the reasons I think that's true is, uh, as we saw last year uh, in Charlottesville, 
I mean, for someone not to understand that those statues um, are not talking about the pride of a soldier, they're talking about the pride of a particular point of view. Um, And we need to have that conversation, which this country, unfortunately, is unwilling to have on any uh, real basis. Uh, and and you know what? It, it, the same thing is true when it comes to uh, the violence in this country. Now, uh, it certainly has been said to me, and maybe to some extent it's true, that the business that we are in sort of glorifies that violence. I mean, you know... Um, Acting, television, movies. Movies. It's, uh, they, the thing that people seem to love the most is all those cop shows and yeah. all those... Um, I mean... And even mer- Scandal killed a lot of people. I mean, it is what it is... Uh, I, I was part of a beautiful, beautiful show uh, with uh, uh, Jennifer Beals, and it was called Proof. And what the show was about was proof that w- there was life after death. Hmm. And it was shot gorgeously, but there was very little sex. I don't think there was any sex in mm-hmm. it. Certainly no violence. Well, mm-hmm. we didn't last very long. Really? And I think, you know, so that's why shows like um, This Is Us. Yes. Um, I think that's why shows like that are beginning to sort yeah. of move it's to away the form because yeah. it's away from the violence. Um, I'm about to do a show called God Friended Me okay. uh, for CBS. What's it about? Uh, and it is about a young man who is an atheist. Okay. Uh, I play his father, uh, okay. and I am an Episcopalian reverend. Oh. Uh, and this kid is an atheist because when he was a child— um, his mother had cancer, mm-hmm. and he prayed for a miracle, and he got it. He got the miracle. Okay. Suddenly, full remission. Oh. Doctors don't know why. Yeah. Things seem to be going very well. She leaves the hospital and gets killed in a car accident. Good God. So he grows up with this idea that God is cruel. Mm-hmm. Um, now he has a podcast, and he talks about his atheism. Clearly doesn't make me happy. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, he starts getting these friend suggestion requests on his Facebook page mm-hmm. from an account called God. Uh-oh. So I so I bring all this up just to say that this kind of show I'm hopefully will be successful yeah. because again it talks about love, it talks about forgiveness, it talks about um, maybe even the der- dereliction of duty in terms of maybe as a dad I didn't quite do the things I needed to do as he was growing up after his mother died. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it 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 presents the opportunity to talk about a world of possibilities as, as opposed to a world that's dark and yeah. terrible. So so hearing you say that, are there any roles or any productions or shows or movies that you were in that were extremely dark or violent that you regret? That I regret? I don't believe so, no. I mean, probably the darkest thing I've done um, from my point of view, would be scandal. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I certainly don't regret that at all. You should not regret that at all. It's a great show and a great performance. Yeah, yeah. You have built this wonderful career where you've got to be on screen, on stage, in movies, and you've managed to do quality work throughout as an actor of color, which I think is hard to do and Mm. takes a certain amount of vision and effort. I'm sure there are going to be some listeners to this show who are trying to make it in multiple industries and trying to do it while maintaining their sense of purpose and their sense of integrity. What advice would you have for them? Well, generally speaking, I suppose uh, nothing better than getting paid for doing what you love doing. There's that. Um, secondly, uh, n- 
no matter what the job is, I mean, uh, I think uh, Denzel said this once, you know, we all have dreams about what we want to do or mm -hmm. how we want to see our lives progress. Mm -hmm. um, the dream is fine, but you have to understand that there's hard work, mm -hmm. that the only way you sort of begin to approach that dream is through a lot of hard work. Yeah. Um, one of the sports that I enjoy watching is tennis. Mm. And one of the reasons I like watching tennis because tennis is kind of like either doing a scene or life in that someone serves up the problem, which is the ball, huh. and you battle that problem back and forth until someone wins the point. But huh. that's not the end of the game. There's more game. There's more game. So, so that's kind of how I view my career and my life is that um, uh, I am on one side of a net and my life is on the other mm. and it keeps sort of serving up the ball and we keep bouncing it back and forth uh, and go from game to game to game, then from tournament to tournament and see how things turn out. I like that a lot. Other thing that I always say to folks or say to myself even is like, it's not supposed to be fair. Oh, right. It's not fair. Nobody ever said it would be. Life is not fair. And if it feels like it's too fair, get ready for some <laughs> to fall apart. <laughs> like, it's like, be prepared for it not to be fair and go through it anyway. I agree. Yeah. Um, yes, because uh, uh, as you say, um, things just do fall apart. Put it back together. Yep. It was truly a pleasure. Um, I thank you so much, not just for your time today, but for your body of work, which is just phenomenal. I appreciate that. Um, folks you. can find you for the rest of this month. Uh, uh, we're at the uh, 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 Veterans Center uh, on Patton Avenue in uh, Brentwood mm -hmm. uh, doing Henry Four. Thank you, Jim Morton. Thank you. Joe Morton, thank you so much, Joe. You can see him through the end of this month in Henry IV. But hurry up, it ends very soon. Uh, this is at the Shakespeare Center of Los Angeles at the Japanese Garden on the West Los Angeles VA campus. You can get tickets and information at shakespearecenter.org. As always, listeners, don't forget to share with me the best thing that happened to you all week. Record yourself. Send the file to samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. We might share your audio in this podcast and on the radio. All right, listeners, until Friday, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.